If we haven't met before, uh, my name is James. I'm the associate pastor here at Halifax Christian Church. Now, many mornings um, when, I, when I wake up, one of the things that Seth will say to me, my three-year-old son, he'll say to me, Dad, let's go to the kitchen. And that's his way of telling me, I'm hungry, you need to feed me. And so he'll never say to his mother that, let's go to the kitchen usually. He lets her sleep in. It's dad that gets up and has to feed her. He's quite the gentleman to her. But, but he associates going to the kitchen with getting fed. And so we associate certain places with certain activities. And so I'll say to Seth, go to the front door, Seth. And I have to repeat it again and again and again. Let's go to the front door. Because when I say go to the front door, that signals, you know what, it's time to put on your shoes. We're going somewhere. I'll say to Seth, uh, let's go to the bathroom. Let's go to the bathroom, buddy. And he knows when he goes to the bathroom that he's going to be doing certain activities there. He's going to be washing his hands. He's going to be brushing his teeth. He's going to be having a bath. He's going to be using the potty. He knows when he goes to the bathroom, he's not going to be playing games. He's not going to be uh, watching a movie. He's going there to do certain things there. Now, he'll, he'll read quite a few books there as he does his business. But, I mean, certain activities are reserved for certain places. If I said to you, Let's go to Starbucks. You know we're going there for coffee. You know that we're going there for some other overpriced drink. There's certain things that you do at Starbucks. If I said, I'm going to the hospital, you wouldn't be going, yeah, he must be getting his car repaired. He must be going shopping for shoes. You'd be going, he must have some sort of appointment, something medically related. Maybe he's going to visit somebody who's sick. And so certain activities are reserved for certain places. And so if you said to a Jewish person, let's go to the temple, they would know that you're talking about, let's go worship and serve God. Let's go be in God's presence. And so spiritual business was reserved mainly for the temple, for Jewish people. Now, for most religions in that time, and even today, it's, it's reserved for the temple. It's reserved for a building. That, that worship and service to the God is relegated to a place. It's relegated to a temple, some sort of building. Now, in the Old Testament, the temple is known as the dwelling place of God amongst his people, the Jewish people. And so a Jewish person could look towards the temple and they'd be ri- reminded, you know what? I am one of God's chosen people. God has chosen to dwell amongst us, the Jewish people. Now, just because the temple was right there, it did not mean that every Israelite had direct access to God. Um, Because God was holy, and Israelites being human were sinful. There was sin in their lives. And so they could not come together. They needed to be kept separate. And so in the innermost part of the temple was the Holy of Holies, the sanctuary. And this sanctuary is where God dwelt, it was said. And so there was a big curtain that would separate the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple that separated the people from the presence of God. And only one person could go behind that curtain on one day of the year, on the Day of Atonement, and that person was the high priest. But he had to go through a rigorous preparation to be able to go into the Holy of Holies. Now God is amongst his people, but God isn't very accessible to his people. he's, He's right there. You can see where he is, but you can't get to him. Think of it like driving through Washington, D.C., and there you see the the White House, and you know the president's there, and you're going, I'd like to meet him, but you're going, there's no way I can get to him. 
Because he's there, but he's not very accessible. And you could, you could try and jump the fence, run across the White House front lawn, see how that ends. Let me know if that goes well for you. But it's not going to end well, is it? And it's the same for an Israelite. If they try and go into God's presence, direct presence, it's not going to end well for them. They would die. Now, we're in our, our series on 1 Peter it's important for us to know that as, as, as Peter's writing to these Jewish Christians, it's about 60 AD, 30 years after Christ has come to the earth, Christ has died, Christ has been resurrected, Christ has ascended back to heaven. And at this time, um, things are, are, have changed for the Christian faith. Judaism and Christianity have, have grown further and further apart. They, they recognize that there's actually quite a big divide between the two faiths. Persecution is actually starting to ramp up against Christians as well under Emperor Nero. And so at this point, Christians are spread out all over the world because of persecution that took place in, uh, in Jerusalem that we see in the book of Acts. And Christians go to all parts of the empire. And so worshiping in the Jerusalem temple is not really an option for Christians anymore. One, because of distance. And two, because they're not really welcome there by the Jewish people. And so Jewish Christians are asking questions like this. What do you do when things are getting difficult? When, when people are coming against you, when you're being persecuted? They're asking questions like, where do you go to worship, serve, and meet with God when you don't have a physical temple? And, and we have to remember, for them, worship in a temple is what most of them would have grown up with. That's what they would have known They're wondering, is the place of worship important? And so Peter answers these questions in 1 Peter chapter 2. If you've got your Bible, we're we're starting at verse 4. So Peter writes, You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust in him recognize the honor God has given him, but for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word, and so they meet the fate that was planned for them. And so here in these verses, Peter is using an idea, a concept that is very familiar to his Jewish Christian readers, the temple. They understand what he's talking about. Now, it's important that we know in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, that the moment Jesus Christ dies on the cross, it says that that curtain that we talked about in the temple that separated God from the people, it is torn in two from top to bottom. Now, this curtain would have been 60 feet high. It would be six times the height of this curtain, and it was woven together. It was very, very strong. And then the moment Jesus Christ dies, that curtain is torn in two from top to bottom, and the separation from God is now open. And so what's the significance of this moment? In that moment, God is saying that through the death of Jesus Christ, everyone can have access to him. That you and I, we no longer stand behind a curtain, no longer able to enter uh, the presence of God or come into his presence, but because of what Christ has done, 
we can come into God's presence because Christ has atoned for sin once and for all. In that moment, God is saying, you know what, we're, we're done with the old covenant. We're done with, with the sacrifices of animals year and year and year and year after year. He's saying we're done with worship in the temple. God is saying there's, there's something new beginning in this moment. Now, how does Jesus end up on the cross? Most of us can answer this. He's, he's, he's rejected by men, just as Peter says here. And Jesus was God's chosen Messiah, but Jesus does not line up with the people's idea of what the Messiah would be like. When you, you talked about a Messiah with Jewish people, what they picture is this Braveheart-style guy. This guy who would come in, be this political um, leader, a military leader, some king that people can get behind, that he's going to lead the Jewish people to victory, that he's going to throw off the shackles of the oppressor, and the Jewish people are going to be at the top of the world again. That's what they think about when they hear the word Messiah. But when Jesus comes, he comes in humility. Jesus comes in peace. He does not fit their idea of what the Messiah should be, and so they reject him. And Jesus is rejected by men and ends up on the cross. The innocent Son of God dies a criminal's death so that the guilty can be declared innocent. And Scripture says that God foresaw this moment and and used it for good to establish a new and better covenant. And Peter says that with this new covenant, there comes a new temple. And Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone for God's new temple. Now, ancient builders, they knew the importance of a, of a proper start when you were building a building. They, they, they would start with the cornerstone, and it was carefully selected because the cornerstone, it would determine the strength. It would determine the integrity. It would determine kind of the orientation of the entire building. And so a wise builder would never walk to the work site, get there and look for a stone, just go, you know what? This will suffice. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't look that good, but we'll start here. They wouldn't plop that down and start building from there. They would never do that. Instead, they would carefully and meticulously inspect the stones and find the proper cornerstone to start with, and they'd put it into place. And then they'd start building from there. They would start building on that cornerstone because it would determine the integrity, the design, the, the, the overall strength of that building. A bad cornerstone can compromise the structure. And so it matters what you start with. And Peter is saying that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of God's temple. Now, what a lot of people are tempted to do today is to begin chipping away at the cornerstone. Maybe we could say they're they're tempted to chisel away at the cornerstone, at Jesus, and, and make him something that, is more ideal for them, more palatable, um, something that would be better accepted by more people so that less people would reject him. Some people are actually just trying to remove Jesus as the cornerstone of the church and just form whatever that would be out of it. But a church without the biblical Jesus as its cornerstone is going to collapse because it's Christ's integrity, it's Christ's strength that holds the whole church up. It's, it's Christ's strength that holds the church together. And by chiseling away at the cornerstone, you're actually sabotaging the church. And I think that's part of the reason we see a lot of churches and a lot of denominations beginning to shrink and go away. It's not the sole reason, but one of the reasons. 
is because they're removing the biblical Jesus and trying to chisel the cornerstone into something that, that they want. Now, what Peter is saying is that even though humanity has rejected Jesus, seeing him as the wrong fit, Jesus is God's chosen starting point for his new temple, for his new dwelling amongst his people. And so Peter's going to say, Jesus is either your stumbling block, you're going to trip over him, or he's your guide. He helps design and orient your life. Now, a stumbling block is exactly what it sounds like. It's, it's a block that you trip over. And so Jesus would be somebody's stumbling block if he doesn't meet the expectations of, of what you want him to be. Jesus will be your stumbling block if you don't think you need his work to save you. Jesus will be your stumbling block if you don't like the idea of him being Lord and Savior of your life. So if you can't accept Jesus as that, he's going to be a stumbling block to you. And if any, everybody here is probably tripped. Everybody's stumbled over something. And it's never gracious. It's never intentional. It's always awkward, isn't it? And you, you kind of do that look around going, I hope nobody saw that. If somebody did see it, catch it on video. Just look it up on YouTube later on. When you go home, go to YouTube and go Atlanta Grape Lady. You will not be disappointed. If I had time, I was going to show it. But go uh, YouTube that later. But when we, when we stumble, when we trip, it's, it's awkward. It's unintentional. We often fall on our face. And verse 8 says that when people stumble over Jesus, they meet the fate that is planned for them. What is this fate? It's eternal destruction. It's eternal punishment. Scripture, and we would know it as hell. Unbelief in who Jesus is results in eternal destruction. And and we need to understand, it's not that God gets pleasure out of this. It's not that God wants to send those who reject Jesus to hell. But that's just the natural consequence of rejecting him as Savior. God is not cruel. God is not mean. He's offered a way out. And our temptation is to go, that's not fair. How can you call God good? How can you call God loving? How can you call God merciful if people will still go to hell? If people will still be punished? I mean, we've all wrestled with those questions. But God is good and loving. And we've said it before. We'll say it again. We don't complain that there is only one way of salvation. We praise God that there is a way of salvation. We thank Him for that because we're not deserving of salvation in any way, in any form. We're the ones who put ourselves in the situation that we find ourselves in. God gave us a good thing. We rebelled. We're the ones who messed that up. God owes us nothing. We've got to get this out of our head that God is in our debt for some reason. God owes us nothing. And any good thing that comes from God is purely grace. And so... If you've been stumbling over Jesus, in this moment, you are actually experiencing the love, the mercy, and grace of God in some ways because you are sitting here and you're hearing the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ can save. That God is giving you that knowledge. And so if you have questions of who Jesus is, if you're stumbling over those things, get those questions answered because on judgment day, we don't get to plead ignorance. It's it's not going to work. And so Peter is saying that Jesus is the cornerstone for this new temple. But a cornerstone, it's, it's simply a starting point. It's not the building in itself. Other stones are needed. 
And verse 5 says that those who have come to Christ, Christians, are the stones that are being added to this temple. And as you become a stone, you become part of something that is bigger than yourself. You're part of a church. You're part of a family. When you become a stone, you're placed into the structure. It's harder for you to be moved. It's harder for you to be misplaced. It's harder for you to get lost because we, we hold one another together. We, we strengthen one another. We hold one another accountable. We have a better chance of impacting the community when we are together. And so the temple of God, the church, it's, it's not a place. It is a people. It's ever-growing. It's constantly under construction as people come to faith in Jesus Christ. The temple will never be done until Christ returns. And so with this temple, there comes a new priesthood. And Peter talks about this in verses 9 and 10. He says, you are not like that. You're not like those people who stumble. He's writing to Christians. For you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you had received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. And so for hundreds of years, the only way to be one of God's chosen people was to be born an Israelite. You had to be born into the nation of Israel. And if you wanted to serve God in a hands-on way in God's temple, you had to be born of the tribe of Levi, and you had to be a male. And if, if you wanted to go directly into God's presence, you would have to be the high priest. And the only way to be considered, even considered to be the one high priest was to be able to prove that you could trace your lineage all the way back to Aaron, the first high priest of Israel, Moses' brother. And so what we see in Israel, not, not just anyone has access to God, not just anyone can enter into God's presence or serve him. So if you came to the temple and you're like, I want to I go into the temple, they'd say, what's, what's your nationality? If they said, I want to serve God, they'd say, well, what's your tribe? What's your gender? If you wanted to go into God's presence, they, better, they would say, well, you better be the high priest and you better be able to prove that Aaron is your great, 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 whatever grandfather. And so what we see is access and service for God was severely restricted to certain people. And Peter's point in writing to these, these Jewish Christians, he's saying that all Christians are now qualified to serve God. It's not your nationality. It's not your family history. It's not your gender. It's not who your grandfather was. But it's what Christ has done that qualifies you for service, that makes you acceptable to God. In Titus 2, uh, 11 to 14, Paul talks about this. He says, For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God, while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. Peter says we are a kingdom of priests. And so there's no longer a, a clergy, laity mentality where only certain people in the church are called or qualified 
to serve God or to come into his presence. But every Christian is just as qualified, is just as called to be in God's presence and to serve God as any pastor or as any elder. Greg said this on his first uh, Sunday 27 years ago, roughly. I was one year old at that time, feeling young. But, uh, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) not calling you old. But he said this 27 years ago. He said, every member of this church or every Christian in this church is a minister. And what this means is that there should not be any casual observer Christians who've given their life to Christ, but they're not serving or contributing in any way in or as the church. If you're a Christian, you better not be found sitting in the bleachers, is what Scripture would say. Every Christian is called to minister, to serve. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Paul says, A spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. And he'll go on to talk about those different gifts and, and how they're used to support the church, to build it up. But you, if you are a Christian, have a gift given to you by the Spirit of God and a role to play in his church. And one of the things I want us to walk away from this morning knowing is that serving God is not solely this responsibility that we have that's like, oh, I guess I better do it. Jesus did a lot for me. God will get mad at me if I don't do it. But it's a privilege that has not always been available. God has made his presence. God has made opportunities to serve him more available through Jesus Christ than they ever have been before. Because of Christ, you have more access to God than any Israelite ever did. God lives in you. Scripture would say your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And think about this. This means our our religion is more of a relationship. That God dwells inside of us. That it's ongoing. It's constant. It can, it can be ever-deepening as we get to know God more. It's not limited to time. It's not limited to a place. And think about this for a second. God knows who you are. God knows every one of your thoughts, good and bad. God knows every one of your actions, good and bad, regardless of what other people know. Maybe you've forgotten about them. God knows it all. Yet God still desires to be in relationship with you. God still desires to forgive you. God desires to be with you, to live in you, to do life with you. Christianity is not a list of things that we have to do because Christ has saved us. Christianity is a list of privileges. It's a lot of things that we get to enjoy because of what Christ has done for us. And as I said earlier, Peter's writing in a time when it's increasingly difficult to be a Christian. And and we could say, actually, we could argue that we're living in a time that is more similar to when when the New Testament writings were being written, that at any point in the last 1,500 to 1,700 years, we're experiencing quite a few of the things that those early Christians were facing. We're feeling some of those pressures. And Peter writes to those Christians in verses 11 and 12 of 1 Peter 2. He says, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. 
Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. And when when Peter is writing to these Jewish Christians, Roman culture is growing increasingly hostile towards Christians. The Christian faith, it's growing in numbers. It's spreading. But for those who aren't a part of the Christian faith and who don't understand it, they're often accusing Christians of some pretty horrific things. Christians were accused of cannibalism. They said um, that Christians, when they get together, they heard that they, they eat the body of Christ and, and they, they drink the blood. And so this is, this is what we would call communion, the Lord's Supper. But non-Christians heard this and they're like, Christians get together and they eat people. And, and the rumor grew to say that Christians were eating the flesh of their children when they gathered. Christians were accused of gross immorality. Um, And so when Christians gathered, it was often early in the morning before they went to work. It was often in secrecy because persecution is ramping up. They don't really want to get caught. It's not going to end well for them if they do. And so they're meeting early and in secrecy. Now, when Christians gathered together, they would often celebrate something that is called a love feast. And it was a meal. it It was fellowship. The Lord's Supper was part of it often. But they would celebrate this thing called the love feast. Now, non-Christians also heard that Christians referred to one another as brothers and sisters, and we do that. We're, we're adopted as children of God. We are brothers and sisters. But they also heard that Christians greeted each other with a holy kiss. And so they hear all of this stuff, and they just, they just conclude this. When Christians get together in their secret meetings early in the morning, it's a giant orgy full of incest. That's what they said about Christians, but it was hardly the truth. Christians were accused of atheism because in Rome's polytheistic culture where there were several gods, it did not make sense that Christians only believed in one God, only would pray to one God. Christians had no idols. Christians didn't go to a temple to worship. And so they look at Christians and they're going, they must not have any faith at all. They must be atheists. And as a result of this, they said Christians are unpatriotic. They're bad citizens of Rome because Christians would not go to um, festivals that were in temples. They would not pray to the gods of Rome. And so people would see this, and when when natural disasters or, or bad war situations happened to Rome, people would say, it's the Christians' fault because the gods of Rome are, are mad at us because we haven't gotten rid of the Christians They didn't stop to think about the fact that these um, natural disasters and and losing wars had been happening long before the Christians arrived on the scene, but they just blamed the Christians for it. And so they didn't even notice that Christians were actually model citizens, that they were helping to improve Rome. Now these accusations, they all grew out of this misunderstanding and lack of knowledge about the Christian faith. And almost all the accusations, they're false. They're ridiculous. But people talked Rumors spread, misunderstanding abounded, and history has repeated itself. And today we find ourselves in a time when Christianity is not really gaining favor with culture. Christians are accused of hatred, intolerance, pride, being judgmental, unintelligent around issues of sexual orientation, uh, pro-life, pro-choice, creation, other hot topics. And I will admit, there are some groups that, in the name of Christ, have gone way too far on these issues. And they are issues that we do need to talk about. They're issues that we do need to address. 
But the biblical view is no longer held by the majority. So Christians are, are made fun of, not spoken fondly of in, in mainstream media or in culture. And many people don't recognize that the things that we seem to be against are mostly determined by the good things that we are for. And so the truth is that Christians are going to continue to be um, misunderstood and maligned as time goes on. Uh, Jesus said that would happen. I, I don't see it changing anytime soon. And so what are we supposed to do as this increases? When I first started dating uh, my wife, uh, people started telling me about her older sister, Brittany. And what they said was mostly not that good. Um, they said that Brittany was, was crazy, cranky, um, violent, quickly flew off the handle. Uh, they just built her up into some monster. Like, I was just, I was like, I don't know what to expect when I go to meet this, this girl. And so the first time I'm going to meet Brittany, I'm kind of nervous going, I really don't know what to expect because people have built her into this beast. And so we get to Halifax and I meet Brittany and she seems fairly normal. I've only known her for about 10 minutes. I'm like, she seems normal. And we have dinner, dinner goes well. And I'm going, what, what they're saying about her? Probably not that true. And so after dinner, we sit down at the kitchen table to play some games. And so at the table, it's, it's Brittany across from me. Then it's uh, Pat, her mother, my mother-in-law, myself, and Shannon. So Brittany's directly across from me. We're playing the games. Things are going well. Brittany's a bit competitive, uh, competitive but who isn't when they're playing games usually? So it's going well. And then a few minutes into the game, Brittany adjusts in her chair, and she lifts up her legs to rest them. And in that moment, she rests her legs on my legs. And then I'm just like, what's, what's going on? And Brittany's like, like, doesn't think anything of it. And she asks, like, what's wrong? And I'm like, uh, like and I'm, I, in my mind, I'm going, like, people said a lot of things about Brittany. Um, maybe this is normal Brittany behavior. Maybe she's trying to assert dominance or something like that. I, I don't know. And so, like, I'm just going, what do I do? And so we just keep playing the game. I'm trying to go, like, do I say something? Or is this, like, normal Brittany behavior? And so Pat gets up to go get a drink of water, walks out of the room. And in that moment, Brittany realizes that her legs have not been supported by her mother's legs, that her legs are still being supported under the table where nobody could see. And her jaw drops. And she goes, why didn't you say anything? And I said, people said a lot of things about you, and I didn't know what to believe. I, I thought this might have been normal Brittany behavior. And it turns out um, it wasn't. But what I heard about Brittany affected the way I interacted with her. And most of the things that people said about her have proven not to be true, or she's changed with time. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but what I heard about her uh, affected what I, how I interacted with her. But what I've experienced with her has changed what I think about her. We get along pretty good now, most of the time. <laughs> but plenty of people say things about Christianity. Plenty of people hear things about Christianity that are not always true. But it affects the way people perceive us. It affects the way people will interact with Christians. And so what do we do? Peter said, live properly among your unbelieving neighbors, then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God. Peter is saying, 
that what we, we, we should combat what people hear and say about Christians with what they experience from Christians. In our one-on-ones, in our interactions with people, we can actually change how people perceive the Christian faith. And so what if in knowing Christians, people saw the church not as this out-of-touch ancient institution, but a relevant community of faith, of support, of care for one another? What if people saw the, the church not as this building of bricks and wood, but as a people where God's presence could be felt and experienced in homes, in schools, and in the workplace? What if people saw the church not a play, as a place of, of hierarchy and a place of pride, but a place of humility, a place of equality as we all bow before King Jesus? What if people saw the church not as this place of hatred and condemnation and oppression, but of freedom, love, and forgiveness? What if people saw the church not as a place of exclusion, but a place where Christians would go out of their way to include you as much as possible, as long as it did not require them violating what Scripture says is right and wrong? What if what people experienced from Christians was totally different from the bad things they heard about Christians? Peter is saying that in doing this, you may be able to turn some critics into believers. And in this passage, we see that the key to building up the new temple, building up the church, is not getting people to a time, it's not getting them to a place, but it's getting into their lives and letting them into our lives. And our hope is is that if people would get to know us, that they would see the true cornerstone, that they would not judge Christianity by us alone, but they'd get to know the true cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and they would see that he is good, that he is true, that he is a solid foundation to build your life upon.